Well, my, my immediate reaction was, quite frankly, that it was the wrong decision. Uh, and that wrong decision being made worse by the uh, accompanying decision that, oh, as soon as possible, we've got to sell off the land which has been acquired, which um, in a sense prevented any future government from reviewing what the uh, alternatives might be to still getting an increased capacity uh, capability between Birmingham and, and Manchester. Welcome to Calling All Stations, the transport podcast. I'm Christian Walmart an author and journalist who has specialised in transport for the past 30 years. In every episode, we aim to keep you up to date with the most engaging news stories and interviews across the world of transport. And with me is my regular co-presenter, Mark Walker, who has spent decades covering policy developments in transport. So Mark, what stories do we have today? Hello Christian and hello to our listeners. I think the first story is actually about the Calling All Stations podcast because it's a year old and we're celebrating the fact that we've uh, completed this number of uh, episodes and I'd like to say, and I'm sure you would as well, a big thank you not just to all of our many thousands of listeners who've downloaded the podcast over the past year and made it a success, but also to our own production team behind the scenes who've made this possible and very importantly to the many guests who've been on the podcast and been been interviewed by you. Yes we've had a fantastic uh, a range of guests from uh, across the world of, of transport as uh, we've as advertised not not definitely not just rail we've covered issues ranging from you know sustainable aviation fuel to uh, schemes that help young people to not uh, drive too fast uh, to stories about um, cycling, autonomous vehicles, um, and uh, today indeed Eurotunnel. So a really big range. Absolutely. And I think that uh, uh, we can say that the Calling All Station has done over the past year what it says on the tin. And indeed we have every intention of doing so for the next year as well. Absolutely. I've enjoyed every moment and uh, we've uh, had, you know, uh, tens of thousands of uh, downloads and uh, it's uh, sort of certainly been increasing in number uh, as we've gone along. And uh, yes, I think the, the thing about it is that we cover the range of transport and initially uh, a lot of our listeners might have come from uh, the within the rail industry or listened to hear rail stories. I think uh, the fact that we cover all aspects of transport uh, has uh, attracted a, a, a lot of uh, people who, who might not necessarily have been interesting in other modes, but have been uh, have learnt stuff through our broadcasting and the stories that we've covered. So we certainly intend to keep that range of stories for the next year. So Christian, what would you say has been your highlight over the first year of Calling All Stations? So uh, certainly one of the highlights for me was uh, an interview I did while I was having a, a cab ride with uh, John Smith, who runs uh, GB Rail Freight, a company that's really grown from nothing into one of the biggest rail freight companies. Uh, and we were speeding down at, uh, I don't know, 60, 70 miles an hour in the cab of uh, this train on the Midland Main Line. And, you know, I might not really be a train spotter, but there's something exciting about being in the cab of a locomotive and seeing the railway from the front, as it were, and seeing what the driver sees, what it looks like, the signalling, the complexity, the whole thing. 
and that always excites me. So I think that was great being able to broadcast from actually uh, the front of a freight train. And what about you, Mark? What, uh, what, what have you taken from this first year of podcasting? I think what I've enjoyed is where we've uh, opened up insight, opened a window on some of the issues affecting transport, like we did very recently on sustainable aviation fuels, giving a different perspective uh, on that issue. But the one I've probably enjoyed the most was where we actually made the news, and that was with the scoop back in the summer on the Department for Transport's uh, inclination, shall we say, to scale down or even switch off passenger Wi-Fi on the franchise train operators that it controls. And the fact that uh, that story uh, in the current parlance quite literally went viral, got into all sorts of national, regional and trade media, broadcast media as well, and ended up triggering a short debate in the House of Lords. And indeed, it's an issue that still has some time to run, I think. And, and it caused them some embarrassment, which was great fun. And it, uh, it all came from calling all stations. And uh, it did get us a lot of publicity and lots of uh, extra listeners. So uh, yes, no, I'm, I'm glad you highlighted that. This week, Christian, we have two really interesting interviews that you've recorded. Um, first of all, we're going to hear from John Keefe, who is Chief Corporate and Public Affairs Officer at Getlink Group, which is the organisation that owns, operates and runs Eurotunnel. And you were there uh, for a, a celebration of 30 years of those operations. Later in the podcast, we'll also hear your interview with Sir John Armit, the Chair of the National Infrastructure Commission of the United Kingdom, uh, getting his thoughts on where we stand as a nation at the end of 2023 on the whole range of questions affecting infrastructure. But first of all, here's your interview with John Keefe. I'm at the event to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Eurotunnel, uh, which has uh, been uh, held in uh, near Coquel in France, at the, near the French uh, terminal. And with me is John Keefe, who actually uh, has worked for Eurotunnel for most or nearly all those 30 years. And he is now their uh, corporate uh, affairs director. And I wanted to find out from him uh, really how well he thinks the tunnel has uh, performed and what the future is. So, John, um, tell me first, you know, do you think the 30 years have been a success? And when you joined, do you think, did you think maybe after 30 years it will be where it is now? Thanks, Christian. I think um, the 30 years has been an adventure. I think we have to say that first and foremost. And I, I think when, when I joined all those years ago, and it was just before the opening, um, it, it was the adventure, it was the challenge, it was the, the project of the century, it was the, 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 the whole um, kind of pioneering spirit that was in there. And I, I really, I think it was joining for that without really thinking 30 years Because it was on. something completely different. It, it, it was some, something completely totally, new. Absolutely right. new, uh, transformational. And the 30 years have gone past in a blink. Um, uh, there has been so much happening, so much has changed in that period. The fundamentals are the same. The, the tunnel is still there, the shuttle services still run, pretty much to the same rhythm actually. 
Um, the high-speed services started off the same. They're still there. They're still running. There are still rail freight services. There's a lot more that could be done there. But behind the scenes, the way that we operate, the equipment that we use, the way that we have adopted new technology, the 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 customer services and the change in things that we offer um, has, has been part of the journey. Um, Can you give us an example of that? Yeah, I mean, earlier on we were, we, we were in our Flexi Plus lounge and that was a service that customers have, have asked for over the years. It's how to get um, a priority boarding, how to get through the different steps of the process quicker and more easily. To have a lounge uh, environment as you do in the uh, in the air travel world so to give it a little bit more luxury on top of the very functional very fast service that we offered because it is a, a basic service through the tunnel i oh, mean when you when you go on the on the shuttle uh, with your car it's it's not exciting it, it, it's exciting to make it work <laughs> but but you see the great thing about it is is that you travel in your own comfort so whatever car you've chosen whatever comfort you like for your journeys you get to use that through the tunnel what we concentrate on is the speed and we we offer you a 35 minute crossing from the uk to france back again um, and on top of that we offer a whole range of other probably less seen advantages we're an electric railway we run largely on uh, power supplied by the French network, which comes from nuclear hydro sources. So it's very green, it's very low carbon. So it's giving people an advantage over other routes, whether that's air or ferry. The, 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 the opportunity to travel in a low carbon way comes along with the fastest route to the continent. Okay, but there is some aspects that are a bit disappointing. For example, Eurotunnel had promised there'd be 20 million uh, travellers going through, sorry, Eurostar had promised that there'd be 20 million uh, passengers, I think, by the end of the last century, and yet they're still running at 10 or 11. Uh, so that's not quite as success that it could have been? Uh, there's still room for, for growth. I think that's the way that we would choose to look at that. The, 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 the regulatory barriers and the challenges of setting up new services have certainly been something that we've all learnt about along the way. But one of the things that we're doing for the next 30 years is we're trying to remove some of those barriers to, to accessibility, making it easier to generate new, new services and new destinations. Um, joining up the infrastructure managers across the continent, whether that's in the UK, whether it's in France, Belgium, you mean, Holland, uh, Germany. by the infrastructure manager, you mean uh, Network Rail and... Uh, Network Rail, High Speed Infrabel, One, yeah. uh, Infrabel, um, SNCF, Rezo, right. so, that, so that we can create um, journeys that then operators can step into. And whether that operator is Eurostar or one of the new entrants that's come into the market recently, that's where we see the growth coming from. And those figures, as you say, 20 million, um, the, the, the figure now forecasted is probably 30 million passenger journeys. Yeah, but why has by it been 30, a disappointment 30s. up to now? Why has it taken, grown so slowly, really, compared to it, what was expected? The, the, I think 
the railway across Europe, the UK, um, individual European countries, is run by different infrastructure managers, run by different authorities, run under different regulations. And it's only in the recent years where the, the EU has put together a much more standardised package, the technical specifications for interoperability that mean you can run mainline trains across borders um, and have the same facilities in each country. That didn't exist when the tunnel was opened and it now does. So it does make a big difference in terms of setting up new services. Okay, we'll talk for the, uh, in a minute about the potential which you have uh, uh, announced today. But just on the other side of the disappointment, of course, is the rail freight. That really has been uh, uh, somewhere where you admitted on your own figures that you've only reached 10% uh, of the target of 10 million tonnes. Uh, it's pretty much what the old roll-on, uh, roll-off ferries used to take, is one million tonnes. So where's the problem been there? That is an undeniable disappointment. Um, the, the problems have been many, to be perfectly honest. Um, uh, the lack of investment in rail freight on both sides of the channel in the, the, the last 30 years. Um, we built various, a whole series of terminals, Donlands Moor and the, Daventry and Wembley. They're all yeah. there, but they're not linked. Right. And the, 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 the problem, if I just finish on the first yeah. step, we've, we, there's also been problems on the continent because things like the migrant crisis that, that affected the security on rail freight trains, which have now been resolved. And so now we're looking at the, um, the UK side in particular and looking at the fact that the, the gauge for operating trains between the Channel Tunnel and the main, um, uh, main line network north of London is too small to carry the big continental trains. So you can run a continental train from the south of Spain up to Cali-Cockell, but to get it through the network in the UK, you have to transship onto a smaller train, and that makes it unproductive. And so uneconomic. uneconomical, and people are not prepared to do that. They want to, and our, our customers are saying to us, I'm running tens of thousands of trucks every year between the, the, the continent and the UK. I want to reduce my carbon footprint. What's the best way to do it? Put it on rail, that seems obvious. I can do that all the way from the south of Spain to the north of France, but I can't get it into the UK. What do I do? So we, we're working with the government in the UK, working with Network Rail, looking at how we can deliver a higher gauge railway through the classic lines between um, uh, Dolansmoor, which is just at the Folkestone Terminal, and Wembley, which will then connect into the East Coast and West Coast main lines, and open up places like Daventry and Hams Hall and Moss End and, and Scotland and, and you know, the whole of the country, giving economic opportunity in a an environmentally friendly way to manufacturers and producers in the Midlands and, and the North no, that, to get their goods to market. That, I mean, that sounds great, but again, it's taken 30 years and um, it hasn't happened. It, it, it's true. The, the, probably the, 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 there's been a coming together of issues more recently. The pressure wasn't there in the past because fuel was cheap. Um, road transport was seen, seen as being the flexible way to deal with most goods. And the green the, agenda. The green agenda hadn't reached right. the level that it has now. But now we have things like um, uh, uh, Operation Brock, we have congestion in the southeast in general, um, we have diesel fumes, we have noise, we have the, the, the disruption to local transport. 
through the amount of traffic that there is on the roads in the UK. And it's the same in France, you know, let, let's not make this just a UK uh, issue. It's the same in northern France. It's very, very dense motorway network with lots of traffic on it. The, the green issue, the, the green um, movement is, is pushing everybody rightly towards a, a lower carbon transport mode. Our customers are being pressured by their own end users, they're, whether they're delivering into supermarkets or into factories, there's pressure being put on them to reduce their carbon footprint of the goods they deliver. And so they're coming to us and putting pressure on us and saying, we want a green alternative, we now want rail freight. So I think that confluence of different factors is much stronger than now than it has ever been. And governments are feeling the pressure to move towards a more environmentally responsible means of method of transport in general. It's taken too long. We have more need for it now and probably more opportunity because of that coming together of the, all of the okay. different factors. So, and of course, the other potential area for growth which you announced today um, is uh, high-speed rail, and which well, might be Eurostar expanding service, it might be these new operators. Um, do you think that can be a, a achieved, and what sort of destinations are we talking about? It can, it can definitely be achieved, um, and, and you're absolutely right. The, the, we run an open access railway, so if, if, if Eurostar is, continues to grow as it promises that, that it is with its forecast for traffic, um, if new operators want to come in and take advantage of the opportunity of using the tunnel, there is capacity through the tunnel. The, again, I mean, we, we, we've lost some time with the, over the last few years in, t in terms of economic development, the, the change in the relationship between the UK and the EU, COVID obviously had a big inf impact on travel and borders. They're now open again, travel is moving fast, Eurostar is growing back to the levels that it was um, uh, pre-2019. So there are other um, potential operators who've declared an interest and have already started work. So we know that there is movement going on and we're working very closely with them. This is uh, Evelyn and Hero. Evelyn and Hero are, are out there and there, there are rumours to ones. be others uh, right. as, as well. Alongside that, which is the, the, the operators who are sort of in the public domain, we've been working behind the scenes with the infrastructure managers, with the station managers, with the regulators, with the timetable uh, developers, to create through journeys from London to, and whether it's London, Amsterdam recently, um, Cologne, Frankfurt, uh, Geneva, Baal, uh, Zurich, uh, destinations in France as far as Marseille or Bordeaux, We've done the market research. We've proven that there is a market there to be, to, to be built on that wants to move away from aviation to a more environmentally friendly mode. Um, we've done the work in uh, planning the paths and ensuring that there's availability in the stations. And now there's, there's almost a sort of a turnkey uh, service there for an operator to come in and, and, and run. Um, and, and that's where we've got to. So when an operator comes in, it means that the time to market from thinking I'll run a service from A to B is halved. It used to take 10 years plus, it will now only take five years. But you, you do have this uh, 
obstacle of the safety of the tunnel, where previously you've had to have these very long trains which are supposed to split in the middle in case of emergency. Now, I understand from the, the press conference we've just had now that, that finally those rules are actually changing. Is, is that right, that you'd now be able to have shorter trains through the tunnel, which obviously will give much more flexibility? That's right. And the, 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 the way that we've done this is by working with the, the manufacturers of the train and the regulators. So everybody understands what the, the criteria are to, to run a train through the tunnel. And then to make that a standard part of a European-wide manufacturing program so that rather than building one, one TGV for use above ground um, on, on, the, on the, ground, the, the big lines, we build one TGV that has got all of the specifications for the tunnel designed into it. So there's no modification after production. And this requires a new set, a new train. This, this is a new this train. This is a new train. This right. will be. This is designed into the next generation right. of, of, of high-speed trains, so that they they can run everywhere. And that means all of the regulators have got together and they've they've agreed, and all of the, all the manufacturers and the, uh, the, 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 the the those buying the trains agree so it's one train one design available for you does, does this train exist no. this, this train is being built it's been built and and it has been approved by the the, the OR and the other European safety authorities the, the, to go through the tunnel without this kind of idea that it has to split in the middle of the, this is absolutely the goal of everybody it's right. to get to this standard train that you don't have to have a separate specification for one tiny right. 50 kilometer stretch of track the train which incidentally everywhere. of course is the only one uh, compared to the alpine tunnels and other tunnels which actually has a third safety tunnel already so in a way it's the most safe tunnel where the requirements have been most onerous Absolutely, the, the, the Channel Tunnel has proven through that construction of three tunnels um, to have the, the, the safest operating system. Right. Um, and the, the, the regulations on uh, go back to the 1980s. Um, and when you look at the first generation of high-speed trains that were built to go th through the tunnel, and you compare them to the current generations, they're, they're absolutely miles apart. And the, the, the thing now is to, to bring all of that into one place and when this new train is produced and this is never mind the the, the 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 manufacturer we've worked with the manufacturers plural we've worked with the potential future operators plural we work with Eurostar our current biggest customer uh, on a regular basis everybody is working towards this unique train that operates across the whole infrastructure Okay, well, that's excellent, John. Well, let's hope that uh, when we return for the 35th anniversary or the 40th anniversary, we have this conversation again, and I hope we're both uh, still around, then um, let's uh, hope that there will be different services to different places from London, because, you know, I love jumping on the train and going to various places, but it has been a constraint to kind of have to change in places, and ticketing and all that has been a constraint. The, the, there is nothing better than a through train journey, um, uh, and and that is something which is uh, more and more people are coming to realise, and more and more governments are coming to realise, and regulatory authorities are coming to realise. It, it's a it's a joint effort to make that happen, and everybody is focused on it now. Let's look forward to it in the next five years. Thanks a lot, John. Well, I, I found that a very interesting interview. Thirty years of Eurotunnel. They didn't disguise the fact actually that in some respects particularly uh, rail freight um, and maybe to some extent actually passengers Eurostar passengers they haven't done as well as they hoped and they hope that over the next few years 
they'll do better. But um, one of the things that they're particularly angry about that didn't come up in the interview is the fact of what they see as social dumping by P&O, who are of course the ferry, the rival company, who uh, sacked all their British workers uh, uh, about a year ago and employed a lot of foreign uh, nationals on uh, minimum or even less than that wages. And of course that enables them to uh, charge less and uh, therefore uh, you know, reduce uh, their fares. And I think quite rightly, uh, Getlink or Eurotunnel, as I insist on calling them still, uh, Eurotunnel uh, see that as, you know, as I say, social, social dumping. And really, it's amazing that given that, uh, you know, this links two European countries, they couldn't come to some agreement to actually stop P&O doing that. Because, you know, th these people apparently live on the ship for... Uh, you know, a week at a time, they don't get off it, it must be terribly unhealthy, um, and uh, they must get very tired, and uh, they might well pose a safety risk. And we know what happens when uh, safety goes wrong on cross-channel ferries, as uh, those of us who covered the Zeebrugge uh, ferry disaster back uh, in 1987 will remember. 2023 was a big year for transport infrastructure, most notably, of course, with the decision to cancel those sections of HS2 north of Birmingham. Christian's been catching up with Sir John Armit, the chair of the UK National Infrastructure Commission, to examine these issues. With me, I have uh, John Armit, who is the chair of uh, the National Infrastructure Commission. Uh, and obviously, I've uh, been keen to talk to him because of the cancellation of a big chunk of HS2 and work out what to do next. But, but John, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. Just tell me a little bit about uh, your commission and you know what its role is and indeed how much it is listened to by government. Well, good morning, Christian, and thank you for this opportunity. Uh, right, the commission has been going for eight years. Uh, our role is uh, to be an independent voice to government uh, on the long-term infrastructure needs, economic infrastructure needs of the country. So we look at transport, we look at energy, we look at water, we look at waste and we look at digital. And we look forward 25 to 30 years and we say, what are going to be the infrastructure requirements to do primarily two things? Um, one, achieve economic growth and achieve economic growth across the whole country. But to do that, secondly, to do that in a way which uh, meets our uh, net zero objectives um, for, uh, for the country over the next 15 to 25 years to net zero ultimately by 2050. Uh, and increasingly, of course, we are having to say, what have we got to do to ensure that we are resilient to climate change, which in itself is becoming a more and more significant uh, challenge. So every five years, we give government a report. They're obliged to respond to it um, within a year. Uh, we do a whole series of other smaller scale reports in, in the interim period uh, between one big report and the next. And to answer your question, overall, so far, government's probably accepted 75 to 80 percent of the recommendations that we have made. Turning that acceptance into in principle into real change and delivery is a is another challenge altogether 
Um, so would it be fair to say that you you like big infrastructure schemes? Are, are you kind of inherently in favour of them or do you take a kind of cold look at kind of anything that comes forward? No, I, whether they are uh, 500 million pound schemes or 5 billion, 20 billion pound schemes is slightly uh, in the outworking of how do we deliver the infrastructure challenges that we need. But increasingly, over the next 25, 30 years, as we've said recently, we can see us going from 50 billion a year of total UK infrastructure investment to 70 billion uh, a year infrastructure investment during the 30s, a lot of it coming from the private sector, um, and probably 30 billion of that related to uh, major, what we call nationally significant infrastructure projects. Those are, those are annual figures, 50 to, yes, uh, annual 50 figures. to 70 billion a year, billion a year. A year. right. Yes. So, so big business. So um, let's focus on uh, the uh, area that of most immediate interest, which is HS2. I mean, what, what well, first of all, did, did you try to uh, influence any decision that was coming out about HS2 before the decision? Was, was that a role you had? We were not, we were not consulted at all. We were amongst that sort of large galaxy of people. <laughs> <laughs> for whom this came as a, as a surprise that had not been consulted. In fact, on the contrary, only two, three years previously, the government had come to us and asked us to do um, a rail needs assessment. Uh, and that as part of that rail needs assessment, we looked at HS2 and we looked at the whole questions of east-west connectivity, both in the Midlands and in the, and in the north. And we what we recommended to government largely became the integrated rail program. So we said, look, you're going to have to slow down. If you've got a cost constraint, then you're going to have to slow down on the, um, on the eastern leg of HS2, but you certainly need to keep going on the, on the western leg. And uh, overall, you're going to spend about $100 billion. If you want to do everything that everybody would like, then you're probably looking at $150 billion. But in the real world of what can be afforded, um, then um, a, a compromise would be about 100 billion, which would include uh, the western leg of HS through uh, HS2 through to Manchester. So, so, so the integrated rail program, as far as we were concerned, was uh, a real step forward. We had a clear uh, rail program for the next 20, 30 years. So suddenly having the uh, <laughs> almost one of the most significant chunks of that uh, cut out uh, came as a real surprise. Oh, well, as you might know, I was a bit of, I've always been a bit skeptical at HS2, but I greatly yeah. applauded the integrated rail plan, uh, unlike some of my uh, rail colleagues. Um, and um, uh, I, I thought that that was a, a way forward and it was a reasonably coherent strategic plan. So basically, you've now had one leg cut off or, or both legs cut off uh, um, and, and one was partly cut off already. But so um, what, what was your immediate kind of, view of that when, when that happened and your immediate reaction? Well, my, my immediate reaction was, quite frankly, that it was the wrong decision. Uh, and that wrong decision being made worse by the uh, accompanying decision that, oh, as soon as possible, we've got to sell off the land which has been acquired, which um, in a sense prevented any future government from reviewing what the uh, alternatives might be to still getting an increased capacity uh, capability between Birmingham and, and Manchester. Um, and that just seemed 
just seemed odd because it was uh, it was so well you know we're not, we don't think the short could be happening and we don't think anybody else ought to come forward and do it either so our immediate sort of my my particular uh, immediate public response was look for goodness sake don't sell off the land give yourself breathing space for the next couple of years to look uh, to look at what the sensible alternatives might be in which we can achieve this capacity constraint. You can look at the engineering, you can look at why the cost has been uh, blown up so much and look at uh, alternative options. And of course, that uh, well, is that's exactly what, what happened with Crossrail, of course. Uh, as you know, yes. Crossrail was scrapped at one point, but they safeguarded it. And that was uh, really important because Crossrail eventually happened and now we have the, the very successful uh, uh, Elizabeth Light. So... Uh, have you made representations uh, to the government to oh, yes. uh, not? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, you anticipated my question that Tom, but uh, yes, no, no, to, we've written, to, uh, we've stop written to the, the We've written to the government um, at uh, you know the most senior levels, um, and we've sort of had the inevitable sort of response: we've got this all under control, and don't worry, and this is what we're going to do. Um, reply. Um, Obviously, the two mayors, Birmingham and Manchester, have got together with various actors and uh, are looking at this. And I can see, I mean, I think inevitably, and of course, it's interesting if you view Mark Harper's performance in front of the Transport Select Committee, when there was acknowledgement that actually this was going to take a couple of years, because they have to now demonstrate well, selling the land very best value for money for the public. Right. Selling, selling the land would take a couple of years. Right. Yes. 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 In fact, they're still negotiating buying some land, I believe, at the moment, because they're sort of three quarters of the way through the process. <laughs> so essentially, you think it is safe until the general election? That's I'd be surprised point. if very much at all it happens before the general election. So uh, uh, essentially, that, then that puts the onus on, on possibly on the other party. I mean, have you talked to them about it? Um. We've not talked. We've talked to them. We've. I mean, the interesting thing about the other party, as you, as you will have seen yourself, is that they are sitting on their hands a bit on all of this at the moment, wanting to keep their uh, powder dry. Um, so precisely how they are going to react at the end of the day, I think we still need to uh, to see because clearly the government's. I mean, argue the government politically being quite clever because it's now spread the largesse across the whole country. Um, uh, largely on road schemes, in fact, rather than rail schemes, with the money that they're saving from HS2. And so anybody who now reverses that is going to have to say to the good burgers of many places around the country, oh, sorry, you're not going to get your extra bit of infrastructure now because we're putting money back into HS2. So well, you can see the political was, dilemma. Some of it was filling potholes. I mean, I, yes. but, but as you know, I mean, as an experienced uh, uh, fellow in these matters, you you well know that this reallocation of money was not really real money. It's kind of uh, the ability to borrow, and that if you want to go back to an HS2 situation, or whether you want to uh, build some infrastructure that will boost capacity that might not be a full HS2, you'd have to borrow the money anyway. So surely that it's not the money that's a problem it's the political intent isn't it? well it's the political yes and it's the um the sharing out if you like of political spoils isn't it so um that i think is the is the is the, is the challenge i mean the reality of course is that to a certain extent you've got to do both um you've still got to continue to improve your rail network particularly if you're wanting to uh 
uh, optimize the use of public transport in the future and to uh, and to make that that contribution towards decongestion of our of our country and uh, uh, and uh, obviously continue to deal with um, the carbon challenge um, but at the same time you do have to fill the potholes because actually that is quite important um, and uh, it's both politically and physically important you just cannot allow your network to continue to deteriorate which is why we also said in uh, our infrastructure assessment to uh, that the government had to increase the amount of money for maintenance to both the railways and to the highways uh, network because otherwise you just have a continuously deteriorating asset okay so um what uh do you think should be done in the short term and what and how how i mean apart from just reinstating hs2 which might not be feasible what what, what do you think should be done about that particular well, got, kind of project well we've now we've, we've lost the integrated rail program so um, what's got to happen now is that that has got to be recast and therefore, because a lot of these schemes, as you, as you well know, which have been sort of talked about in improving different chunks of the railway, none, none on, some of them are not really properly on the drawing board. They will be in people's minds as to something they would like to see. So we need a proper rail programme, which the, the industry can respond to. So they need to go back and, frankly, do another integrated rail programme, which includes how are we going to improve capacity between Birmingham and Manchester, as well as how are we now going to best use the money to get the most effective projects, which are going to uh, increase the, uh, particularly improve the capability of the networks in the across the north of England between Liverpool and, and Hull. And uh, that that remains a key a key driver. I mean, we we see it um, as the NIC. We can go from here to our office in Leeds uh, more quickly than people can get across from uh, across the country in the northwest of Leeds. I mean, it's, uh, there are big improvements required, but there so, need, needs um, to be a proper program. Yeah, but John, that sounds that sounds like maybe too long a plan. I mean, okay, say we get a, a Labour government, surely they they have to kind of hit the the road running on this and and what you're suggesting there is you know drawing up a strategic plan and blow it is it not going to take a very long time i mean can you do this well it needn't take no it needn't take a very long time i suspect you could do it in six you could do it in six to twelve months i mean because you've got all the work which went into the last one now a lot of that work just needs to simply be uh, now put in the context of what has been said and say well how much of what has been said is to be, oh, we'll do a bit of this, we'll do a bit of that, we'll throw some money here, we'll throw some money there. How does that actually get put into what was the integrated rail programme before so that we, and, and then come back to this fundamental question of we've still got a challenge between Birmingham and Manchester. Otherwise, we're negating the value of what we're building between London and Birmingham. You know, you finish up with half a cake, which is worse than no cake. Yes, I've called it the Acton to Aston Shuffle, as you might know, and uh, yes, yes. Um, uh, and that seems to actually point us into exercise. But so it's interesting. So you think the whole thing is in, up in the air, that the integrated rail plan got killed off by this as well because of its connections with HS2. So we, we have to start uh, with, with, a, with a, a plan. Who is going to draw up that plan? Well, I think that uh, I've always said that all of this, all of this work, um, 
the key actor in this is the guy who's got to operate it at the end of the day and the guy who actually understands what we've got out there and its effectiveness probably better than anyone else, which is network rail. And so the take as has happened in the past, it happened with HS1 when rail track was kept out of the loop. And it's, you know, you've seen it happen to a certain extent with HS2 where you set up a totally separate business and exclude network rail from it. When you're looking at these key rail strategic decisions which have to be made, then there's a good argument that it should be uh, that it should be led by network rail, supported by people like Northern Rail uh, and so on, who've got a particular interest in their in their patch. But you have to have one entity which drives it, and uh, I would frankly um, ask network rail to do it. Right. Yes, I remember when you were boss of network rail, you were rather yes. cross about being excluded from HS One. Uh, you've just reminded me of that. <laughs> So, uh, okay, so so, do you remain, uh, I mean, to end, do you really remain optimistic that we can get a coherent plan? I mean, only yesterday the, the Labour Party announced a review, actually, of uh, uh, its policies in relation to uh, rail infrastructure. Um, well, I think that was more, was, was that policy or was that more about, was he talking about Jürgen's? Yes, yes. Well, that, I think, was more about how do we deliver it effectively, wasn't it? Um, um, and why, why yes. have we got these big cost differences between the yes. UK and elsewhere? Yes, um, which, headed by which the guy is, from uh, Siemens, yeah. Um, which um, we're actually looking at ourselves at the moment because we think there is a real issue to be addressed there, to understand, because otherwise we just get all these numbers banded around um, with no knowledge really as to whether apples were being compared with apples or whether there are some, some significant differences. I always said when I was at Network Rail that it seemed to me that uh, if I was buying a tin of varnish and I was going to I was going to use it on the floor of my home, then that had a price. Um, and if I was going to use it for the railway, then double the cost for the tin of varnish simply because somebody <laughs> put railway on the tin. You know, and I think there are some real challenges to uh, address. Okay, but so to finish off, you. You remain optimistic that we can get a plan out of this. We can kind of kickstart because, you know, it's, it's, infrastructure is not I'm, I'm, a strong I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm optimistic um, simply because we have to do it. If we don't do it, it's a negation of it's a negation of responsibility. Um, we just leave the thing very airy fairy, um, with all sorts of vested interests pushing their particular schemes. We run the risk of a sort of pork barrel politics approach to this. This has to be a proper strategic plan agreed between government and the railway industry. Otherwise, um, it's not going to be de delivered effectively. This is a 20-year programme and you can't do a 20-year programme of improvement to the railway um, on a sort of a, a wing and a prayer. Oh, well, that's an excellent place to end, John. Uh, th thank you so much for giving of your time and, um, and good luck in your endeavours. Thank you very much. As you heard, Mark, uh, he's pretty angry about this. In fact, he's furious about the fact that I suppose there's no real strategy behind these decisions. Um, it's all completely random. Yes, they were consulted, but uh, that's about it. And really, he thinks that um, you know the, the present government has absolutely no interest in the issue of infrastructure, on which, of course, all uh, our lives depend and particularly the lives of our, our children and grandchildren depend because we need decent infrastructure in this uh, country. So, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a very polite kind of uh, rather patrician fellow, but my God, he's angry about that. 
Here's Christian's final thought from the departure lounge. Well, I've been gallivanting uh, around the, the country, uh, you know, Eurotunnel, I went to Munich, I went to various uh, places around the UK. Uh, but the other day I popped down the road, which is uh, only a couple of miles from my house in Holloway, uh, to King's Cross, the headquarters of the Railway Modelling Club. And they were celebrating the fact that they've completely revamped their library. And this is a facility that is uh, actually open to the public. You just have to go on their website and kind of ask to go and visit. And they've got no fewer than 7,000 railway books there. Um, and it's a fantastic collection, incredibly comprehensive. So if you've got uh, some research to do and you want to kind of seek out you know, some obscure history possibly of some, some line that most of us have never heard of, or indeed you just want some general kind of uh, information, they're a great place to go and they very much encourage people uh, to come along. It's their own building. They actually own this building. They, they used to make a lot of money from uh, exhibitions of the like. So the Railway Modelling Club actually owns a quite substantial building in King's Cross, which uh, uh, they have managed to resist any attempts by developers to, to buy them out. So it's quite a, a some wonderful uh, models there and wonderful trains. So if you've had enough of the library, you can play with the trains. So that was great fun and I do recommend that. And I would just like to end by thanking all our, our listeners, thanking all uh, those who've uh, sent feedback. Do keep on uh, sending us emails and stuff. We're easy to find. And uh, indeed, I look forward uh, to uh, broadcasting for the following year and wish you uh, a Merry Christmas and a Happy 2024. Calling All Stations, the Transport Podcast with Christian Walmart is produced by Cogitamus Limited, a leading provider of public affairs consultancy services in the sector. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do also follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at All Stations Pod.